having that communication and collaboration in a space where everyone feels comfortable and safe yeah. i think that's the starting point of the dialogue of bringing people together hello and welcome to the season 2 of understanding the future I am your host Punit Gandhi and Climate Center for Cities is excited to bring to you a podcast about the future of work in the field of climate change, urban development, sustainability and innovation. We will talk to experts working on ground as well as in the top management of government and non-governmental organizations to better understand how the field looks like in future. This will help us in preparing to enable climate actions as well as gauge the type of skill sets and jobs that would be required in future to solve complex challenges. If you are listening to it for the first time, do tune into season 1. Hello and welcome to the season 2 of Understanding the Future. I'm your host Punit Gandhi and today we have with us Ms Nupur Prathi Khanna. She is the founder and principal at the Beyond Build Private Limited. She will help us better understand the topic of inclusive cities. Welcome to the show Ms Nupur. Thank you Punit I'm really looking forward to um, this conversation. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you for taking out time and so let's let's start our conversation with the uh, first basic question that is what do we exactly mean by inclusive cities uh, i think i'd uh, i've been working with this whole idea of definitions and theories and i just feel an inclusive city for me is where every child feels safe happy and feels an, a sense of ownership that this is their own his or her own i mean that's how i define it and and i use children for a specific purpose because i think they haven't yet been adulterated by uh you know uh others understandings you know they're more they have a more commonsensical uh, and pure intuitive element so yeah that's how i define it for myself at least okay uh because so whenever whenever we read about inclusive cities anywhere and uh while doing research about this podcast as well some of the things that come up as soon as we search of inclusive cities is slum upgradation and i that is where uh, like how would you tell that process different than this process of your definition so you know uh, uh, punith when i told you this definition or this uh, explanation which is more for myself i had primarily children from marginalized communities in mind okay you know, our children uh, in general have uh, facilities uh, all safety yeah. i always say that they open their mouths the food appears you know they think of <laughs> something and the game appears and they want something and that appears it's it's for them it's magic you know yeah. they, they don't even have to lift the wand but things appear but for children from communities where uh, their parents don't have the opportunity to make things appear for them yeah they still retain a very basic sense of uh, uh, you know needs uh, and not wants and i think yeah. safety and um, for a child to take ownership of a space are basic needs they're not wants they're not wants of society they're needs of a society and it's the society's duty to actually deliver these needs to these children or you know fulfill these needs for children you know that yeah. they should be able to walk out play wherever they are playing without the mother having to keep an eye on them they should be able to cross streets they should be able to go to school 
you know we yeah. uh, a lot of times in uh, our geographies we've made a big deal out of it you know that yeah. they need to ch- children you know these are basics these are not a next level luxury and every city that's not able to provide this to their children which is many cities uh, around the sure. world just need to rethink because if you're aspiring for inclusive cities well here it is this is what an inclusive city is you know city sure. where these children can be safe own it walk to school not feel like uh, they are living in someone else's city just because they yeah. are migrating from elsewhere or you know city is for everyone a city is for migrants it's always been that way yeah yeah i do agree because uh, majorly major part of any big city or whenever city is growing it's growing because there is a lot of migrant population uh, from all age group that comes up and eventually those kids settle there and grow there and own those parts of the city so i i do agree with you over there that how uh, children need to be put at the center of this uh, but while we are talking about this uh, how do we make sure uh, and so what are the general challenges that comes up for children especially the marginalized children uh, and because they don't have access to grounds like let's say let's take something as bombay or delhi they are megapolis uh, i'll put it that way but they don't have enough space they don't have enough safety so what what general kind of challenges uh, do we see growing up that uh, that will cause to those children see i'll tell you uh, there are a couple of things actually one is that uh, when we look at something from a child's perspective we usually look at something from an environmentalists urban planners landscape architects perspective yeah but that's what we are reflecting on them yeah i don't think they see their environment the way we reflect their environment uh, the way we see their environment and the way we put titles on it the way we put names and you know we give it a nomenclature and then we give it an emotion and we give it then a policy and then i don't think children see it that way actually um okay. so we've been doing a project uh, across uh, with sweden funding in india and we are working with children uh, of marginalized communities and uh, we're getting them to write stories about their immediate environment yeah. and you know um they write it with a certain matter of fact uh, sort of a style because that's yeah. their life that's their environment they are not analyzing it yeah they are not thinking about it the way we are giving it so when you say challenges uh, you know you know what the challenges are the challenges are hygiene the challenges are water access to clean drinking water access to toilet facilities but when you look at it and you ask the children what the challenges are you know they put the challenges in such a different way i mean one of the challenges one child said was all the time i'm playing without slippers and now because of corona i have to wear slippers and go out i mean which urban planner is going to think of that as being a <laughs> challenge for which we uh, uh, use pavements and you know i mean you know we don't think like that right yeah uh, children are thinking of uh, you know we think of water water pollution yeah for them they look at it as a place it's the waterfront it's the it's a place next to the nala it is something that they play in you know one of the main challenges that children have highlighted in all of this these stories which for me was a revelation yeah is smell they okay. define everything around them from the perspective of smell they describe water as smell wow they describe plants as smell they describe moving from one part of their neighborhood into another part as smell 
you know, and which which uh, which platform digitally is actually addressing that, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think planning has to. Uh, the reason uh, we have gone seeking children, I mean, it's not been an accident. It's been very very strategic and deliberate. Okay. Is that around us something is going wrong? We are producing more and more reports. Yeah. We are such a rich community. You know, world over, there's so much work happening in this sector. Yeah. You just have to take one visit outside the house, you know, and walk outside your gates of the gated community yeah. to see what the reality is. And, and then you wonder that obviously there is something very basic which needs a little tweaking because otherwise things aren't going to change. The decade of action and 2030 uh, agenda and everything is going to come and go, but we're not going to see a lot of difference on ground. True, true. And that, again, every every big organization, small organization is pushing for sustainable, resilient, inclusive. And uh, for me, that's more like sometimes these are parts of words which are just, we just keep on repeating such stuff and don't do as much as we should do about it. And uh, with children, while they are young, they are talented, uh, we, we don't recognize those things. So how can that be tapped into this kind of ecosystem? So what is the kind of processes do they, do you follow to make sure that, okay, uh, they you get enough output out of it that you can give it back to them? Very good question, Puneet, a very good question. So, you know, um, what's been happening is that when we decided to uh, take on this project. This was my dream project. The funding was coming yeah. for something else. And I said, no, this is my dream and no one's going to fund this dream. And this is really what I want to do. And we had a fantastic uh, uh, collaborator and they said, okay, go for it. Right. Because yeah. they, their mandate was marginalized communities, uh, resilience. Uh, this is uh, you know part of the Stockholm Resilience Center. Uh, yeah. So uh, they kind of said, okay, you know, if you want to work with children, you want to work uh, and uh, you want to work, go ahead. So I felt that one of the modus operandi that uh, we adopted was uh, working with an organization. So we actually collaborated with the organizations across Ankur that works with children, Care Earth that looks at ecology, Beyond Built that looks at uh, design, you know, and Nidhi Madan was a very close, uh, like we work very closely within Beyond Built. Huh. We started uh, looking at how children firstly perceive their environment. So if we're looking at urban flooding, how are they looking at flooding? Because it's their houses that get swept off. Yeah. It's their roofs that are getting damaged. They're writing stories about the drip and the drip yeah. and the dampness that they live with. Um, yeah. But they're also writing about the, the dry periods. They're writing about, they made a vocabulary of vessels that they use to store water when it's dry every time the tanker comes. So there's a yeah. lot of, uh, so here as a planner, one is trying to understand their, their understanding of their environment. So that's number one. Yeah. Number two is, I think uh, one of the very important uh, uh, solutions, you know, we're talking of nature-based solutions a lot these days. Yeah. Uh, but as a cultural heritage professional, I'm talking about nature and culture-based solutions. So one or two very important culture-based solutions within, let's say, the Indian environment 
a large part of the traditional environment in Africa is about Jugaad, right? Yeah. And Jugaad is about really using the material that is around you to create something larger. Yeah. And I think that's something that we are really working with and innovating on because we have a problem in India, which is a lot of dumping in the urban environment, dumping yeah. of various kinds, solid waste management, right? Yeah. And then we have a paucity of material. These yeah. children or their parents or these communities within the squatters and slums cannot necessarily uh, use, uh, you know, or buy materials to uh, sort of, uh, you know, like build new houses or do repairs, etc. So we are working with the whole concept of Jugar. We are working with the whole concept of reusing waste right yeah. we are using so, so in the urban environment looking at the problem itself being a potential and this is where mm. nidhi is really working very hard mm. and then we are working with how we can work with the children i'm very uh, you know i'm very uh, nervous about the words capacity building and training and because i think the children have a lot more yeah. to teach us than, than to be honest <laughs> true i agree you know when, when you work with children you have you need a certain humility so i think yeah how we can have an exchange with the children to use these methodologies of construction, of environmental orientation, of, of uh, cleaning up the water systems, uh, etc. starting from them and their immediate environment. Yeah. So, you know, so I think there is, there is, that's where the exploration and experimentation is. True. Uh I, I absolutely get that point. But then coming to the next part of this is on the lines that we when we are talking about this and we have talked about safety a couple of times already, how do they perceive it? Because I think that is where we might also be getting it wrong somewhere, uh, how to provide safe neighborhoods at the end of the day. So what is their thought process on those lines? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the children have not uh, i think it's it's interesting because the children haven't really uh, brought out the safety issue in a big way okay they are very uh, beautifully connecting where they live in a squatter in the city yeah with how their village is right okay so they talk about uh, the open space in a particular way they talk about farming uh, they talk about uh, what they are drinking and eating they're talking mm -hmm. about uh, how they are playing or how they are studying, or or the terrace, the terrace as being that open space which gives them the freedom to explore. So I think that that safety is not being addressed as a safety thing because I think that's again an adult uh, orientation that don't go here because this is not safe, uh, don't mm. do this because that's not safe. Children in general are have a certain bravado to them. True. You know, I'll give you a small example. I, I live in Stockholm and yeah. I've been wondering why there are no railings here because it's, it's, it's a set of islands, right? It's an archipelago yeah. with water. Yeah. There are no railings. So I have seen toddlers age two, three on roller bikes at the edge of a water system with no yeah. parent running and trying to reach out to grab them back. And I've okay. been, while doing this project in India and living in Stockholm, I've been trying to see that We'll always go and grab our child to bring him back from an unsafe environment. You know, it could be unsafe in various ways. So yeah. what I'm realizing is that here in Sweden, they'll teach the children to swim. 
very, yeah. very early. It's mandatory. It's okay. mandatory that the child learns to swim very early. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's it's almost like a you know it's a policy. You have to do it. Okay. And they're not worried when the child goes into the water because they're more equipping the child to get out of the water. Okay. That's... Right. They know the child will go into the water at some point or the other. Yeah. In in our cities, when we're talking about safety, right? I think there are. a uh, safety is a very deep conversation a uh, safety has a very important gender aspect to it which maybe in a a short discussion we may not be able to address and i wouldn't say i'm the expert the only expertise i have yeah. is that i'm a woman an asian yeah. woman uh, you know living in uh, a western environment as well as uh, you know from an indian environment and there's a different definitions of safety in both so i think from a child's perspective there is a certain need to be free Yeah, and somewhere it's linked to safety in a very sort of a subtle way. You know, it's it's more that freedom to be themselves, to you know, do what they want to do, to roam, to play, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that uh, is a, is a you know how I see or how I see them seeing it. But again, you know, it's, I don't know how they see it to be honest. I, I do feel it's it's a complex uh, thing for us to understand everything that they are saying as well, and to infer something out of it. Uh, but then again, on some similar lines, I, I I would like to understand one more basic thing is about jobs for their parents, that uh, they do understand at certain point these people bring us food somehow. I, that is my concept as of now as an adult. I'm thinking that, but uh, how how do they see? economic activity in that perception that what it is what is going on around them so you know it's very interesting uh, again uh, because the mandate of the project was more to do with the environment we started mm-hmm. picking out adults in their uh, environment whom yeah. they could sort of uh, interview okay okay whom they could meet uh, in the longer run uh, uh, the my uncle team uh, sharmila ji and prabha ji came up with this brilliant idea that they could even intern with hmm. to understand what kind of jobs there are uh, and and i think it's important for us to revisit the aspirational culture we have set up of sitting in an office the way you and me are doing yeah. and having this job that we think is really important whereas to me now the understanding <laughs> is the only job that's important is when you can use your Uh, self and your skills and your you know your your faculties in your hands to actually carve something out create something that's the most yeah. important job because that's the job which is going to be in peril in the future right yeah so it's about changing the aspiration of the next generation to understand that upskilling or skilling or uh, job creation the it it delinking it from uh, this sitting in the office and doing this very important job right so we started thinking that how can we work with so we chose people who were making a difference in their environment so let's say we chose the kabadi wala hmm. okay and we started it was um you know i i've been teaching in the school of planning and architecture as a guest faculty i've taken my students to a lot of slums we've looked at kabadi wala areas we've looked at how they collect but we've never looked at it from someone who lives in that neighborhood and who sees very closely mm. what the gentleman is doing you know uh, 
And so they started looking at vocabulary, nomenclatures, the Kabadiwala was using for different waste. Uh, so they started understanding waste in a depth. Because I, the, the one thing that I wanted to say was that uh, culturally, um, India has always been one of the most sustainable cultures in the world. And yeah. any Indian who goes out and lives elsewhere can feel that because you're just not able to throw. You're True. just not the culture that is taught to waste, scrape food, throw things. You will always find an alternative place and use for it. Yeah. And it's so deep in your psyche, culturally, that the dumping grounds that we see, we call them problems of solid waste management. But a lot of times it is many other things at a cultural level. So that's yeah. why I feel that the solution that we have to bring out has also got to be from within our culture. So that is why we chose the Kabariwala as a possible economic or an uh, occupational uh, option for these children. We thought yeah. maybe they can actually do an internship. There was a young girl who was interviewing uh, this gentleman uh, and uh, she wrote yeah. a beautiful line. where She said, when he's unwell, all time stops because the waste waiting to be segregated. It still lies in its corners, waiting for this gentleman to come and put them in their right places. So it was yeah. a very beautifully poetic thought that this child brought out, right? Yeah. Another adult uh, in terms of occupation they saw was a lady who had taken a patch of land and created a nursery out of it, hmm. right? From nothing. Yeah. You just created a nursery where people from around that basti were coming to buy seeds and plants and things for their pots. Then they found another occupation, which was uh, the guy who was selling water in the summer. Yeah. And they were questioning then in the stories, how come when we come from our villages where water is completely available, that we have to buy water in the city? Yeah. You know, so their parents are the backbone of our society. True. And COVID has actually taught us that. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Right? That we exist because they are with us. So they do understand the link between the economic activity and the food being brought, but maybe not in a theoretical way, you know. They know that the dad, if he doesn't, mother doesn't earn, there is nothing to eat that night. So it's yeah. a very real link. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's fascinating to see how these things are interrelated. But again, these are all... Uh, fields of science as adults we see as different and these are not like something that okay you just do everything together you have a particular field for every of these things separately so how how do we you know try and map it out so that as as a generalist over here that, uh, because you can go in depth at in science point of view but at a as a generalist level, we still have to bring it as one solution. So how do we uh, proceed towards that? Okay, that's a very interesting and a very uh, tough question uh, because that's pretty much what my whole exploration in uh, my professional life has been. Okay. Uh, you know, so um, I do feel that uh, the next decade yeah. is a time for generalists. Uh, but I don't think I don't think we understand uh, 
generalists in a very uh, i mean my understanding i can share my understanding of what i think a generalist is yeah. you know so i feel that um once you have been an expert at something hmm. or an expert at certain things you now yeah. need to look at how collaboration if you want to bring about a change because it's very simple uh, any example you look at you look at the five fingers of the hand you look at any team one member one expertise one silo one background one science one social stream yeah. will not make a change it will not make a difference it has not made a difference you know uh, we we have the results in front of us and we are either ready to see those results and face the reality or we feel that you know it'll all be fine we just continue doing what we are doing so i think continuing doing what we are doing uh, it was a decade or two decades of expertise building that we worked on you know we were always told be a professional choose one profession stick it out you know don't i think that time is gone yeah that time is i mean to me it's gone a long time back we just just not ready to face it the time now is firstly to collaborate in order to collaborate you need to communicate i don't think communication is easy because even on a simple project where we were with people from a science background ecologists we were with people who were primarily in the social sciences background or social workers essentially and then we as designers planners environmentalists landscape architects we were speaking the same language so what did we agree to to tell the child or or hear the child you know that's why we said okay we are going to all keep quiet because we'll just now listen to what the child has to say yeah and then taking a cue from there which part does a landscape architect work on in this public space which part is the ecologist coming in which part is a social worker coming in we all start working together to make a difference and it's not an easy start and the importance i always look at a generalist versus a specialist from the medical profession hmm. you know every time we have a heart problem we'll go to the cardiologist yeah right now we know that the cardiology problem might actually be created by the environment yeah right so yeah. so you know you you can't look at your heart in isolation from uh the the environment the air pollution the water pollution the food you're eating yeah. you you just there is no now that that time is gone where you can separate these things out so the cardiologist has to work with the pollution experts the resilience experts we all have to work together and then start uh, finding the solutions and those solutions we have to keep our children their faces in front of us you know we're not doing yeah. it for ourselves because our time is going to go without in the blink of an eye True. you know and any difference we want to make will probably happen in the next 30 40 50 years true so i think it is you know i do think that general we, we really have to move in that direction instead of generalist i might call it collaborative but and, and collaboration is something uh, so we have uh, as a so i have been working as a fellow at smart cities mission prior to uh, joining cq and that was one of our key objectives as well how do we we call it again a bigger word and jargon uh, we use as quadruple helix that how do we bring different stakeholders of government academia citizens and industries together 
but when we look at it when we went on ground and talked to everyone uh, that was the communication point as you pointed out was one of the most difficult things to track as that becomes something uh, so everyone talks in a different language how do you make one language for them to make sure that okay everything kind of works together to develop a solution and then again uh, delegating the task thing comes into picture but i do agree that collaboration and communication are important points to it and uh, so coming towards the next part is on the line that you have yourself uh, started as a landscape architect and you are now uh, designing uh, such ecosystems like i can probably say it broadly so how how did that journey happen how so that has gone from more aesthetic to more integrated holistic design i would put it uh, i i don't know like i am not from a uh, planning background but i would just think of it as that that uh, it has gone more from aesthetic towards more uh, holistic systems so how that has that journey evolved over time so i think uh, the starting to that journey was uh, uh, being brought up in a family that allowed you to be yourself because i don't think if i asked my parents uh, they would have ever they, they would know about the professions we've chosen you know i mean literally <laughs> so that freedom of choosing what you want to do i think has been a very important part of this evolution of not defining yourself by your profession hmm. defining yourself by how you want to make a difference yeah. right and sometimes you can make a difference as being a landscape architect and sometimes you put on another hat and you can make a difference as a heritage conservationist so i that so family i think and that belief that you're here to make a difference uh, and you can make a difference is a starting point yeah. the second was uh, i fell into a, a bachelor's degree i i say completely fell into it uh, because my okay. brother was from the school of planning and architecture and he's a re uh, resilience uh, person yeah. and uh, um i got a, i got into a course uh, which was a new course called physical planning which was eight semesters of something completely different it was environmental okay. planning it was traffic and transportation planning so lit, uh, heritage uh, design housing so what happened was you went through eight semesters of completely un so called unrelated subjects uh, yeah. theory and practice in studio and so you saw a lot more very early in your career or very early in your educational uh, background you know we were going to slums then we were going to make regional plans somewhere then we were doing housing in a locality then we were designing a house for an artist so it was a completely random multi-layered sort of uh, also helping not define what you want to be you know like a liberal arts degree which most parents want today that have a very open bachelor's degree and then keep figuring out what you want to specialize in so yeah. i think that was a very Uh, important key point for where i find myself today yeah i soon found out i wanted to do the work on design and the environment mm. the only option was landscape architect so while i was working as a landscape architect i uh, started falling in love with storytelling through design okay i started realizing that spaces people communities have stories yeah. and my role in that whole thing is when we talk about design concepts and was bringing out that story and using it to create something and then okay. seeing it through so you actually built that story and that 
awakening that you were actually building something and seeing it emerge probably was one of the most powerful points uh, in my life. And I see that landscape architects uh, will be the new uh, leaders in public space and city building in the future, you know. Hmm. So it wasn't really aesthetics that I define the profession of landscape architecture as because I think uh, that's maybe how it's practiced in parts of India, but that's not yeah. how landscape architecture is. Landscape architecture is about understanding land, understanding okay. terrain, understanding water systems, you know, and then I went and did a degree after working as a landscape architect for seven years or so, I started yeah. working on heritage projects and I fell in love because I said, here yeah. is where the story is so rich and yeah. it can come through in design that I went and did another master's in heritage conservation. Okay. And so somewhere, I think I was just collecting some sort of an information set in my brain because when yeah. you go out in the field, uh, when I do projects today, I don't think I can silo them as being projects in urban planning or landscape or heritage because everything is together. Yeah. Everything is together. You know, uh, uh, I'll give you a small example of uh, my bachelor's thesis. I was yeah. working on urban villages. Okay. Okay. And I was with the Laldora concept of how that red thread is, thread is drawn and then uh, what happens inside you sort of let it happen organically. Yeah. And then two years later, uh, so I, I looked at uh, areas where brick kilns had come up. I looked at areas where uh, industries had come up. I looked at areas where uh, stone was being mined. And then mm. years later, I was working in an office which was in an urban village. So I lived in the urban village pretty much for 12 hours of the day to yes. experience how it was. You were in the most affluent neighborhood, but yet you were in an urban village. So what is yes. the word inclusive here? You know, it's, it's, it's bizarre, right? Because yeah. there is no balance that we are imagining. There is no one language. When you say that bringing everyone as a stakeholder in one language, but there is no one language. True. you know and and uh, so i think it's it's been a journey where now coming to that holistic has been happening it's sort of happening it's a process of it happening without me consciously realizing it and today yeah. coming to an understanding that this design skill is also i mean design thinking is today being preached from stanford to i mean you yeah. take an e urban lab you talk about design thinking right yeah so understanding that this is probably where we will be able to solve problems, scale up, but then we have to take that message to the children, right? Because in yeah. Western environments, design education is part of their uh, um, middle school education. They learn design in many schools from a very early age of uh, 10 or 12. How do you take yeah. that to our children of the slums and the squatters? Because they are basically designers by birth jugar is in their blood <laughs> yeah uh, no I, I i see i see your point over there and uh, that is where so generally uh, one of our final questions is what skill sets are required but i would tweak it for you over here is what do you need as good skills to be a good designer uh, what are those couple of skills required which will make you a good designer or make me a good designer over here because I'm trying to learn from you. So I will tweak the question a little further. Sure. I would say, what are the skills required for this industry that has so far uh, sort of uh, 
uh, been concentrated on design skills, I would I would say what is that the newer skill set huh. that is required in the design industry in uh, you know our our cities, and I think yeah. one of the most important things is uh, to have an ear to the ground, hmm. to be listening. You know, uh, I always say that designer that goes creating the same where you can look and say, oh, this is this landscape architect's work or this architect's work cannot be an evolved professional yeah. because every situation is different. Yeah. And you have to come in and listen to that situation and no two projects can ever be remotely similar, even if they're two houses for two brothers built wall to wall. Yeah. Right. So I think the most important skill is to listen, yeah. have the ear to the ground. I think the second skill, which is almost linked to this, is giving the respect to your client and understanding that the client is not going to be someone who earns more than you, is uh, living in a better environment than you. Your client set is going to change. It's already changed. We are choosing maybe not to go there. The yeah. client's to are the majority and the majority today are the Indian public that don't have the have nots or the marginalized. Those are your yeah. new clients. And the moment you're faced with clients who are, don't have the same degrees as you or the economic level as you, uh, you have to remember that they may know much more about where they live and what they want than any of your degrees or your experience could have taught you. I think that's a very important skill set to come in. Because only then you set the ground for collaboration. You know, yeah. uh, so I think design is an automatic fallout. You obviously fell into the profession because you love designing. I am, I love designing, but literally I had to put that on the side, seeing that uh, I can do something which maybe I need to do. That's my calling, where it is to link design to the reality of changing things on ground. So I think finding that mission and understanding a lot of youngsters has, have come to me over the last many years and said, you know, we can't look at these sustainable development goals because they are for big projects. How do we contribute? And then I always tell them that everything you are doing, everything you're yeah. doing, is contributing to it. Until you don't internalize that, you will still remain a you know, a profession for the privileged, a profession yeah. which is again associated with aesthetics. It is not a profession for the aesthetics. It's a profession for planning and inclusive city. It's a profession that should take care that when there is flooding, the cycle of uh, flooding and uh, famine and flooding and drought, it's us. If we were doing the right job, I always say the medical profession would be without work. <laughs> yeah, true, true. That's that's a beautifully answered uh, question. I, I'll say that. Uh, please do let us know if I have missed out of any point and you would like to cover it. Uh, we can surely take it up right now. No, I think we are fine. I always like to end with a little anecdote. And uh, I'll, I'll do the same out here, uh, sure. which is that uh, uh, I was organizing a stakeholder meeting for a government, a set of government uh, institutions. There were many stakeholders who were supposed to be called. And so the client set up this room, this fancy room and everything. And the first day, the multiple uh, departments, heads and their representatives came. 
the second part of the stakeholder meeting was meant to be with the community hmm. and no one came hmm. and we got a message that uh, you know the no one is going to come they can't come yeah. they're busy and all all so i ran into the deputy mayor's room and i said is it possible for us to go there uh, you know where the site is yeah. and stuff and no one's going to be there anyways the to the long and short it is that very often we in that looking for that one language we create a place space which is not where people may necessarily feel comfortable uh, yeah. either coming to that place or opening up or having a conversation starting a dialogue so we went uh, to this uh, these waterside steps and we sat there and we and while we were sitting there a couple of us people who were passing by kept joining the group so you got your stakeholders you got people from the community from the you know so many different levels of stakeholders yeah and then sitting on the steps it was i still remember we all had to catch our flights back it was uh, dusk uh, we were going to be running in a while we started talking about that water system and the skyline yeah and we started talking about how their own communities were actually creating the problem but in a dialogue and yeah. i think i have taken that one stakeholder meeting with me uh, you know and what is covid doing covid is asking us to be outdoors covid is saying you know <laughs> have a distance you know and i think just having that communication and collaboration in a space where everyone feels comfortable and safe yeah. i think that's the starting point of the dialogue of bringing people together so yeah i just like to end with that but uh, it's been fantastic uh, Puni, thank you so much, and thank you to NIB thank for organizing. You know, Mahesh for him too. So fantastic. Absolutely, and thank you for your invaluable uh, experience sharing. Because I think the closing remarks does resound with the kind of episode we had today. Uh, thank you so much, and I look forward to. I I hope that more people find about it and listen to it as much as possible. Thank you. You have been listening to Understanding the Future podcast. To know more about Climate Center for Cities, check out our website www.niua.org/c-q. The show is conceptualized, produced, and edited by Punit Gandhi, Senior Associate at CQ. You can now subscribe to our podcast on your favorite channel, which can be accessed through the credits. Also don't forget to follow us on our social media for more updates. Do share your reviews with us and help us spread the podcast to your friends and colleagues. Do write to us if you would be interested in learning about any specific topics. Thank you and stay tuned for our next episode.